0: Welcome to the Global River Church Discipleship Teaching of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org. You should, if you're here, uh, you should have a copy of the handout. Anyone need one? Got one? All right. And those that are following online, we're going to... You want to get out a pen uh, and some paper we 're going to we 'll have some powerpoints that'll follow along as well but i 'm going to give you a, a lot of scripture. This uh, topic, the cost of the kingdom I, you know in my thirty five years of being involved in ministry teachings of small groups i don 't think i 've ever really dug into this one like this and um, it 's huge it 's unsettling it's uh, it 'll put tension between. One side of Scripture to another, and you know when the Lord does that, it's intentionally kept us in a place where you can't get real comfortable when you read these Scriptures. It'll it'll motivate you to go deeper into the the revelation. I want to start. Um, I want to start with a Scripture that, that in the cost of the kingdom. I want to open, if you will, turn with me into Mark's Gospel in chapter ten. And you'll be remembering this scripture when we read it. It's about the, the, the rich young ruler. And um, then I'm going to circle back. So this one is not in the PowerPoints yet, but if you want to open, those that are listening by live stream or by radio 95.3, if you're there, open up to Mark's gospel, chapter 10. And we're going to begin in verse 17. And I'm going to... Uh, Predominantly being a New Living Translation, which is the thought for thought translation, but I am going to reference and times go back to the King the New King James as well. So let's start. Mark ten, seventeen. Jesus started on his way to Jerusalem, and a man came running up to him, and he knelt down and he asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Pretty massive question would you not agree? And he said, Jesus, it's an interesting response. He says, why do you call me good? Jesus asked, the only, only God is truly good. Of course, he's speaking to God, but at that point, <laughs> there was some controversy over that. Not in Jesus' mind, not in John the Baptist's mind, but verse 19, but to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, you must not cheat anyone and honor your father and your mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Wow. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. But there's still one thing that you haven't done, King James says, there's one thing that you lack. i just put that there for a moment. He's lacking something. Does that mean he's not perfect? Does that mean you're not going to make it in eternal life? Does it, what is it, this, this word lack, there's something you're missing? And your question originally was, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus brought him to the commandments, the moral law of God. He says, but there's still one thing you lack. I want you to go and sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? This amazed the disciples. Jesus said again, dear children, it's very hard to enter the kingdom of God. Let me emphasize that. Dear children, it's very hard to enter the kingdom of God. King James says, How hard is it for those that trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? So there's this dependence on trust and value and where you've placed your treasure. We're going to get into a lot of that. In fact, verse 25, it says, In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The, st- the disciples were astounded. Well, then. Who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But not with God. Everything is possible with God. Now, you can imagine what the disciples are going through at that moment in their own thinking of their eternal life, their salvation, whether they've made the cut. And Peter, it's got to always be Peter. Peter begins in verse 28. He says, Peter spoke up. He says, We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied. And I assure you that everyone who has given up a house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, property for my sake and the good news will receive now in return a hundred times, a hundred times. There it goes back to John's, no eye has seen. A hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, property. Now, look at this one, along with persecution. Wait a minute, that's not a, that can can't be in the value of return. I like the house part. Along with persecutions. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be the least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. So, I want us to take away from this, again, this tension about the rich man who obviously was a moral man and was in pursuit of him. He wanted to question the Messiah, but he couldn't let it go. Could not make the trade-off. Now, the question you might be thinking is, Did did he lose eternal life? What was it that he was lacking, and what did that mean? And so, and why does Jesus include all the benefits? The one of the benefits is persecution. I'll just put that in your mind. I think it'll, by the third Wednesday, I think you'll have a a greater, better understanding of that revelation, because we've been looking at this thing of suffering, I believe, all wrong. At least many, somewhat skewed version of that. So if you'll pull up the first PowerPoint in the cost of the kingdom, and look at your page there, it says, "In the Song of Songs," I, I encourage you to read that. If, you ever, if you're ever in a down place, read the Song of Songs. It'll uh, first of all, it'll blow your mind. When you look at it from the perspective of uh, Christ and his bride, from uh, the bride and the church from the Shulamite woman and the nobleman. Um, it's, it's a really interesting book, and it's, there's a statement in Song of Songs chapter 2 and verse 4. I've got it at the top there. It says this, he brought me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is love. Remember that song? Brought me to his banqueting table, and his banner over me is love, right? There's this, when I say banqueting table, what does that bring to your mind right off the bat? A wedding. Okay. He he prepares a table and presents. Wedding. Golden crown. There you go. It's like you have to repent for for gluttony after that, right? It's like when you go to a banqueting table a wedding, you're probably not fasting, right? In fact, Jesus said that when the Pharisees came to him and said, how come your disciples don't fast? He goes, they will, but why would you fast while the bridegroom's there? When the bridegroom is gone, then they'll fast, right? And he did. He gives us that. So, banqueting, when, when he says, he brought me, he brought me to his banqueting table. So, he presents for us, like the, he prepares for us. The psalm says, he prepares us a table in the presence of our enemies. And so, when we look at this um, Scripture, let's, let's turn to Matthew 22, I touched on this a uh, couple of weeks ago in one of my sermons when we were looking at watch and pray, but in Matthew 22, let's begin. I want to read let's begin in verse one. We're going to read through this, and again, this is another challenging scripture for us. Matthew 22. Remember, he, he, he talks of a great feast. In verse 1, Jesus also told them other parables. He said, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who had prepared a great wedding feast for his son. Does that sound like Jesus said, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything's ready, I'll come back for you. John 14, right? So, this king has prepared a great feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. How about you? Did you ever get a, um, an invitation to a wedding that you you really well? Uh, be honest. You weren't excited about going, right? Uh, I'm not saying in-laws outlaws, but hey, um, but or. It was, they were really busy. There's just things happening, right? Um, This is not a good one not to come to, (laughs) okay? Let's read on. It says, so he sent the servants out, and they were invited to come, but they all refused to come. Now, of course, he may be talking to Israel at this point uh, as a reference. Remember, it's prior to the, the resurrection. So, what does he do? He tells them, he sent out the other servants, tell them, go back out and tell them this is going to be a really nice one. You know, this is like top of the line. The feast has been prepared. The bulls and the fatted calf have been killed. Everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests he had invited ignored and they went on their own way. One had his farm. I got to go do some farming. I got some business to do too busy to come to the banquet, too busy. Got other agenda. But it gets worse. There were others that actually seized the set of second messengers, insulted them, and killed them. Now he's talking about his prophets. This is an allegory or a, par- a parable of, I sent you my prophets and you killed them. I warned you of the kingdom and what was happening. And you've insulted them. You've mocked them. You've beaten them. And so, he's, he's you know, you can see if there was a Pharisee sitting in there and starting to click, they, that's why they might get upset enough to want to kill him. In verse 7, it says, the king was furious and he sent out his army. Now, he sends out the angels, right, to destroy the murderers and burn their town. Something to sound like the Book of Revelation, and he said to his servants, "The wedding feast is ready, and the guests I have invited—they're not worthy of the honor." Interesting. When you think about honor, we're going to the wedding. We're going to be honored, and no, you're invited as a guest to be honored. Now, go out to the street corners and invite everyone that you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find. This is a very interesting statement here. He went out to the highways and gathered together all as many as they were found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with the guests. So I want you to see in the audience, in the wedding, who've now been invited are the bad dudes and the good dudes. I don't know what, how, they, how he made that value judgment on them, but there's folks in there that are not very nice and they're in there. One of them gets identified and is cast out. Just think about that for a moment. You don't have to be perfect. <laughs> you may have a history and it's under the blood for the glory of God, but those, the good, the bad, and the ugly, praise God. We all have our testimonies, right? And so he says, but when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothing for the wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you are here without wedding clothes. Now, they went out to the street, maybe like Doug, out in the street ministry, and invited everybody to come. Now, they don't have the resources, the bad, the, they don't have the resources to get a tux or get a tie, or they've come. Only So, there, I have a clue that there's many in this, but the one who's not wearing the proper garments is a hard issue. We'll look at that in a moment. And he calls him out. He says, how is it you basically got in here unprepared to be in the wedding? Even though many were invited. The man has no response. He doesn't know how to give any excuse or anything. He can't speak. He doesn't. The king says to his aides, I want you to tie his hands and his feet and throw him into outer darkness. Where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called but few are chosen." Interesting parable, um, ought to make us all think about the clothing. So I wanted to dig in a little bit more about that. Um, first, let me ask some basic questions here, which you probably already know some, many of the answers to. In the cost of the kingdom, first of all, what is the definition of a kingdom? what's the definition of a kingdom? Say it again. So, the realm of a king, right? There's a territory or a realm who has a king or a queen uh, in the natural over that territory, right? So, a kingdom um, is a territory or a realm that is ruled and reigned by, uh, governed by, in fact, here's some of the definitions. You can ask Siri on your phone if you like. She'll give you about five or six. And A territory ruled by a king or a queen, a realm that is under the control of a particular entity. Interesting word. A spiritual reign or authority of God. A spiritual reign or authority of God Another one is the rule of God or Christ, I was glad she had that in there, in a future age. It's a place where God and Christ will rule in a future age. The last one was, it's the heaven abode of God where the faithful will go after death. You ask Siri about that on your phone, that's a like, now that's Kingdom. It's a heaven or an abode of God. It's where God dwells. We're going to talk about third heaven a little bit more. We'll try to get, maybe not tonight. But it's that place where God lives in the abode of the third heaven. And we'll give you some scripture on that as we get gone. And it's where the faithful Go after death. Remember, he said, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And so there's this place, if you've ever been with people, and I've been with many as they pass from this life through the veil, and they pass through, and those who have been peaceful with God is amazing. Those who have not, it's not amazing. So, the definition of a kingdom, think of it as a realm or a territory ruled by and governed by a king. What is it? This is obvious, but what is, what is the word or definition of cost? What does it mean there's a cost? The price, okay? The value of something, right? Remember, Siri says it this way, the cost is the amount that has to be paid or spent to buy or obtain something. Hang on to that thought, John. Okay, it's also the effort. That's another one you might want. It's an effort. There's a cost in this. There's an effort or a loss or even a sacrifice necessary to achieve or obtain that which you are trying to purchase. Okay, so let's dive into what the... We're going to kind of build on the kingdom concept, the banqueting concept, and the cost concept as we unravel some of these scriptures. Why don't you turn with me first? I want to go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. I just want to look at, uh, we'll start in verse 12, look at a couple of verses here. Colossians 1. We don't have a PowerPoint for this one yet, so just write that in your piece of paper if you're at home. Dig into this one. Colossians 1.12. Paul is uh, describing to the church at Colossus these amazing promises. And then he gives them this uh, statement encouraging them. He says, always thank the Father. Verse 12, always thank the Father. King James says, give thanks unto the Father which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. New Living says it. Always thank the Father. He has enabled you. He's enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to His people who live in the light. Now, what does it mean to be enabled? You, it's it's an enabling process, right? Uh, if you drive your car, it enables you to get somewhere faster, right? It's a vehicle. It's, it doesn't mean you take advantage of the enablement. But the God, he says, thank God, he's given you the ability to be enabled. Doesn't mean you'll take advantage of it. You can still walk and leave your car in the driveway. But there's this place where he's enabled you. But I want you to look at this. Verse 30, He says, verse 13, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. I even like how King James says it even better. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. Think of the realm. And he has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So think of the two. How many kingdoms are there in the spiritual realm? I think there's two. Right? I think there's two also. At least Scripture talks about the kingdom of darkness, the realm of darkness, and there's the kingdom of light. The translation. And he talks of these. Obviously, for our for our perspective, he says. You have now, you ought to thank God because he's enabled you to be translated, transformed right from that dark place you used to live right into the kingdom of his light. That ought to make, you know, if you're talking about eternal life, it's like he's enabled us. But let's go back to those scriptures we read before. Not everyone who's invited to the banquet, who even sits in the banquet hall with an invitation, is properly ready. That ought to scare you. That ought to make the fear of the Lord reverentially obvious to, what do you mean by that, God? We who are probably the richest nation ever in the face of more people in the United States have been privileged as such a large group ever in the history. I'm not exaggerating. You go look it up. In the history of the world, there's never been so much benefit as to the people, even some of the poorest because of all the social benefits and pro- the, even the, the technological benefits of when I go to Africa and they got to walk five miles with a five-gallon pail on their head to get enough water to cook and bathe for their family for one day and do the same thing tomorrow. Right, Terry? Amazing. And so, just, just the ability to have power and clean water and air conditioning. And a lot of that, we, we want more, and we expect it, and you got to. You no, know, there's this place of we, we need to be careful in our rich man. We're all rich in many things. You say, well, I don't have what Gates have. it. Mm, be careful. So, when we look at this, he's translated us from that dark place, or at least enabled the transformation to happen. So, let's, let's dig at another one. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Now we're going to start looking at garments and clothing and preparation. In Revelation chapter 19, another exciting scripture, but a little bit unnerving. Can be. Revelation chapter 19. Of course, John the Revelator, this there's a song in heaven. If you've ever read through the book of Revelation, it's like, good Lord. Half the world's been destroyed. It's a mess. And we get to the place of a song and victory in heaven. Many believe the church has been raptured. It's the first time after Revelation chapter 3 that the church is spoken of again in the book. And in Revelation 19, it's about the place where the rider on the white horse, you can look over there, who's now coming back as the king of kings and lord of lords. He's not coming back as the little babe in the manger. He's coming back tattooed as lord of lords on his hip. He is coming with the armies of God, and he's about to have the shortest war in the history of all mankind. You're done, Satan, into the pit, right? And so, we see this song of victory coming, the march down. But then, in the midst of it, He speaks of the preparation of what's going to be a banquet for his son, the victory over all the vanquished of all the enemies of all time, and the devil's about ready to have his due. And it says in verse 6, And I heard as if there was a voice of a great multitude, of the voice of many waters, as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty omnipotent reigns. Let's be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the linen is the righteousness of the saints." And he says unto them, Write, Blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are they who are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, There are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship, and he said unto me, See thou, do not. I am a fellow servant, speaking to the angel, and your brethren and I have a testimony of Jesus and worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let me go to the New Living in verse 6 he says, "Praise the Lord our God almighty he reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and the bride has prepared herself." How did she prepare herself? She's been given, she's been given the fine pure white linen to wear. The fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. Now, think back to the ruler for a minute. He kept the moral law. He was a righteous man. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not lying. I'm, not, I'm honoring my mother. And my, I've done all those things since I was young. And Jesus turns to him and says, there's one thing. Sell your stuff and come follow me. That, the good deeds, now... Walking morally and uprightly is a deed. <laughs> it's righteousness, and righteousness is a weapon. We know that. But there's something about the deeds that are done by the righteous ones of God that is the preparing garment. Now, I don't know about you, but does that mean that some of the bride is missing shoes? Does she not have the veil because she didn't do a whole lot? Well, I don't know, but it's… We go back to the banquet and the guy who was not dressed for the wedding feast. And there's something about the free gift of salvation, which we know because Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says, for by grace have you been saved through faith. It's a gift of God. It's not about your works unless anybody would boast about that. But there's something about the works <laughs> In the books, when they're opened in Revelation, it says the book of life shall be opened and the other books will be opened. Well, what are those books? I believe one of them is the book of works. That's in Revelation 19. It's also in the book of Daniel. It says the books, plural, shall be opened. Here, let's go there. Oh, that's in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Saved by grace. What did I say? Yeah, um, for by grace have you saved through faith. Through faith. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And so, um, so when we look at this preparatory part of the marriage banquet and feast, let's uh, let's turn just to the right a little bit and go to Revelation in chapter 21. Now, this is… Obviously, the conclusion of many of, of, the, of the age at that point. And it says, let's pick up, it says there's a new Jerusalem. And um, it, it says that coming down from heaven, this is in verse 2, like a bride beautifully dressed, speaking of the new Jerusalem. He's going to wipe away every tear, verse 4. It says he's going to make everything new, verse 6. He says, it's finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Same thing he said on the cross. And then he says, seven, all who are victorious, victorious over what? All those who are victorious will now inherit all the blessings that I will be their God and they will be my children. But cowards, unbelievers, corrupted, murderers, immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, all the liars, their fate's the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, come with me. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He took me in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city with the gates and the angels and the tribes. A lot of um, interesting language there and lots of ways to look at that, but clearly there is this remnant of the bride who's made herself ready, and he then talks about those who are disqualified, the cowards, the unbelievers. What's the definition of a coward in spiritual terms? The unbelievers, the corrupt murderers, the immoral, those who are witchcraft and idol worshipers and liars, their place is not with the bride. They are not in the banquet, and I don't know if that's related to their lack of preparation, Certainly, their unbelief. So, we see here in the parable of that wedding feast that we read in Matthew 22 that all that are invited, many ignore it. Many go further. They actually kill and insult the one who's invited them by the king. And the bad and the good, they come, but one is cast out. And I shared a couple of weeks ago. About the ten virgins. If you want to turn with me to Matthew 25 for a minute, we'll just touch on that topic because I just think it rounds out some of that scripture. In Matthew 25, when Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, here's all the signs of my second coming, actually, disciples asked him, What will be the sign of the end and your second coming? the end of the world? That's a pretty big question. (laughs) And then he lists, I I have at least 14 or 15 signs in Matthew 24, and you can look at similar ones in Luke 21 and Mark 13. But In verse 1 of chapter 25, he speaks of the 10 bridesmaids. King James calls them this, verse 1 of chapter 25, Matthew, then shall the kingdom of heaven be like. So, here we are, here's the kingdom discussion again, and he uses that example in the parable of the servants and the talents, and then he uses it in the final judgment of the separation of the sheep and goats. The kingdom of heaven, verse 1, chapter 25, Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins. Now, that tends to talk of purity, um, ones who have kept themselves in a place. Uh, the New Living Translation calls them the bridesmaids. So, they, they've been invited. They're, they're actually in the wedding party, Right? If you're a bridesmaid, if any of you been there or had, you know, I've paid for several weddings. (laughs) Can't imagine some of those bridesmaids gowns. And so, you're invited, you've got the garments to be in the wedding (laughs) uh, party, and you've been invited and actually, but you got to come with your lantern of oil. (laughs) And if you remember the sermon a couple weeks ago was five of them. Got, they all got tired. It was OK to sleep, because he delayed coming. The bridegroom didn't come when they expected him to come. That coincides with Jesus said, "Be ready. you don't know the day I'm coming. It'll be a surprise to him when you come when you least expect it. But you better have oil in your lamp, and guess what? You can't share your oil. You can't come to me at that time and want my oil." And it really, I think, says, once the bridegroom has come, there's no more salvation. It's over. You can't find oil after that. Your story is finished. Even though you've been dressed and you thought you were ready, you're not. That's another scary Scripture. And it goes on in the parable of the servants. And, uh, you know, you don't like how this ends in each one of this. Verse 13 of that Scripture says, watch out, you don't know the day or the hour. But he says, I didn't know you. And he locks the five out and they never get in to the wedding feast. So they're dressed in their bridesmaids gowns and they're outside the door with no oil and they don't get in. They they were believers, they were invited, but they were unprepared. The question is were they really believers? Because and that's the debate. You can look you can look at commentaries on this one and there's all sorts of it says they obviously they were bridesmaids so they were in the bridal party. But they were not ready. They were unprepared. And they did not have sufficient oil. Some think, does that represent the Holy Spirit? What is it? I'm gonna let you just ask the Holy Spirit on that one because the commentaries are all over this one. But he basically is we can we can step back from that, and said make sure there's oil in your lamp and you're ready <laughs> when he comes, right? Then he goes on with the servants, and you know this account, the three servants, and in, according to their talents, he gave them a portion according to their abilities. Look at verse 15. He says, he gave bags of silver and bags of five to one, two to another. Yes, question. The hmm? question is, what do we think the oil represents? What do you, In the oil in the, the lamps, what do, you, what do you think it represents? You believe it's the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Um, that's light we share with the world. I think they were all believe it. That's my thought. Mm-hmm. But some let their oil go out. So they become the lukewarm ones. They burned out. Yeah, and they didn't go- mm-hmm. pursue. They didn't persevere. Mm-hmm. Did they lose their salvation? I don't know. Yeah, see, that's the... Bo- the it also has tell. to do with the purity. Yeah. Yeah? And what's interesting, is one of the commentaries talks about it's the church. These are people, that, and they all look the same. We all have the bridal gown. We, usually you've got a matched color, all the, you know, all the cassava. Everything's, everybody looks good to go, and we all have our lantern. But guess what? There isn't enough oil in the lantern of the five. So this is a rude awakening for those who think they're ready, but they're not. And the bridegroom says, I never knew you. That's why it's a spooky scripture. That ought, to, that ought to do something about how ready do we think we are. The problem with deception is you don't know you're deceived, my friend Leif often says. So, this is a Scripture, and it's, again, in the, in the parable of the talents, people have certain abilities. Some of you have tremendous abilities, right, giftings of dance and music and teaching and, you know, sound and AV, you know, wow, awesome abilities. And the Lord looks at that, and He doesn't, you know, when I look at my, uh, when I give, um, let's say, assignments to my grandchildren, take the garbage out, help me with this, I don't have the same expectation of my my three-year-old granddaughter that I do for my nine-year-old grandson, right? And so, the wise father, grandfather, mother, right, grandmother, you don't Expect their abilities, you, you don't give them something and challenge them something that you know they're not capable of doing or that they could get hurt doing, right? This is the same case here. He gives them their giftings or he gives them their talents, and but he has an expectation. If I tell my, third year, my th- three-year-old granddaughter, you need to clean up the room with all the dollars you just messed up, Papa's going to come back. I expect you to clean up the room. That's within her capabilities. If she doesn't, there's a consequence to it right and so it's the same here when we see this situation he gives them according to their ability he says in verse 15 Matthew 25:15 he gave five bags of silver to one two bags of silver to another one bag to and divides it proportionally to their abilities and then he goes on a trip like to heaven resurrected and ascended <laughs> and then you know the story he waits And after a long time, verse 19, the master returns from his trip and he calls them to give an account. Tell me what you did while I was gone. And you know the story. Uh, the, the, The person that had the least talents, who had the least expectation, did the least. And it's not a good pretty picture here again. He says in Verse 29, to those who do well with what they're given, more will be given to them, and they will have an abundance. But those who do nothing, even with what little they have, will be taken away. Now, throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And not another happy scripture, <laughs> you know, about woohoo. So that ought to challenge us with what am I doing with what he's given me? How am I doing that? Just challenge, And then, remember, we're balancing. This is not about works righteousness. It's not about earn your salvation through works because Ephesians says that's not true. But there's something about when I'm into the kingdom and I know who the king is and I understand the riches, then I ought to invest in his kingdom because I'm a good citizen of the kingdom, Right? There's privileges of being a citizen. If you're a citizen of the United States and you get hijacked somewhere, we generally send special forces in to go find you or we work and negotiate to get you out. There's a citizenship privilege for being in the U.S., right? You show up at a hospital, right, Bishop? Whether you have health care or not, you get served. There's a privilege to being in this country. That's why many come here even when they try to sneak in because they know how blessed they can be here, right? Again, I've been in places where there is no health care system. When I was in Mozambique in the bush in Mutarara, I'm telling you things I saw there, babies being consumed by worms. That'll mess with you. And so the privilege of being a citizen is is powerful, but there's an expectation. Pay your taxes. Support your government as long as they're godly. Amen? All right. So, let's, let's move on. Um, again, let's go back to the PowerPoint about the wedding clothes and the kingdom of heaven is like. And then in that PowerPoint where we've got listed there in Matthew 13. So, look at your handout, but also turn back to Matthew 13. I've got it actually listed on the handout. It says this. The kingdom of heaven, now he, he gives actually multiple parables here in chapter 13 of Matthew. There are so many parables in this one. If you just look at it, I'll just quickly uh, title them for you. There's the parable of the farmer who scatters the seed, which is the Word of God. You're probably familiar with that scripture. Then there's the parable, he, he describes that. There's the parable of the wheat and the weeds, where the, the, the wheat and the tares, right? He, he plants the wheat. And the tares are sown by the enemy at the same time. And the instruction is don't pull out the weeds and don't try to go after the tares now. They're going to grow together. In fact, I'm told by the guys who know about plants is the wheat. And at the early stages, the wheat and the tares look the same. And you might get confused. So, they're growing together. Both that which is a weed and which is going to end up in the fire because it looks the same. In the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, the parable of the hidden treasure, the pearl. I want to go there. In the parable of the fishing net, and a lot of this. If you start to pick out the themes of this, here, Katie. When you pick out the theme of this, you start to see there's a culling process. There's a separation. Right at the end, there's this. Even in the in the fishing net parable, he 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 separates the good fish from the bad fish. He the parable of the wheat and the tares at the end. He'll burn them up. But I want to look at the, the verse 44. We're on the first page, first paragraph. Matthew 13, says this. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hides it. And for joy... Over it, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. I want you to look at the, the consistency here of sell all that he has. Again, the kingdom of heaven, next verse down, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man who seeks, that shouldn't be godly, it should be goodly, but there are godly goodlies, I guess. They're, they're goodly <laughs> pearls. They're, in other words, they're valuable. Who, when he had found the one pearl of great price, He went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. What is this sell everything you have? Now, let me go back to the young ruler concept again. There's one thing you lack, sell everything, and follow me. You want the pearl of great price? Sell everything. You want the hidden treasure, which is the... I've listed this in the next verse, I believe, where where Paul says to the church at Ephesus in chapter three, verse eight, the endless treasures that are available, the unsearchable riches that are in Christ. I don't think we have a deep revelation of the concept of the riches of the endless, unfathomable depths of Christ. I don't think we have a clue. That's why that scripture John quoted is is so meaningful. You can't even let your mind go as wild as you want it to go. You can't even enter into the thought life of how great it is that God's got prepared for those who love him. You've never seen it. You've never heard it. You know by your spirit something's like, this is like endless treasure, but I have no idea what endless means. But I'm motivated by it, right? It's like (gasps) beyond your Human capability to figure it out. And that's why when we think about what we trade that for, what the stuff we trade for that, it's like when I think of Esau, right? I, I, I made fun of Esau, but, you know, Esau is like the firstborn. He's going to have the father's uh, promises of the blessing, and he comes back from the field after a hunt, and he's like, I'm really hungry. He goes, and his brother says, well, give me your, give me your birthright. He goes, what good is my birthright if I'm starving to death? He compromised the flesh need for his legacy of his inheritance. And we can sit there and say, what a dummy. And yet, excuse me, how many of us have traded so much, either in our ignorance or in our rebellion? We trade for our porridge of the satisfaction of right now and recognize I'm not too far off from the young ruler. So, the privilege of try- of trusting him there's this scripture turn with me in philippians one twenty nine Philippians one twenty nine remember where Jesus said, "Whatever you've given up houses brothers, and you're going to get a hundred times that and sufferings." <laughs> Why did he put that in i don't I, that must be a typo in there, right it, it, I've quoted it before, but now we're going to Philippians 129. And it says this, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for Him. We are in this struggle together. You've seen my struggles in the past. You know that I'm still in the midst of it all. Let me read the King James. For unto you is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, trust him, have faith in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I, I got to be transparent with you. I think I've looked at this whole thing about suffering incorrectly or not in the depths of what, I, I don't know about you, but we're, obviously we're, we don't like pain, right? We, 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 we search for comfort, Right? That's why we tend to sit on the couch in the easy chair and overeat and veg out on Netflix or whatever, right? There's times when if you're in pain, we got to get out of pain. We're adverse to pain. Now, there's the natural side of it. The reason he gave us the the, 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 the senses: if you put your hand on a hot plate, pull it back because you're going to get burned, right? So, there's a, there's a natural side of avoid pain. So, I think if you translate that into the spirit realm, we, why are we suffering right now? Why, when I read things like tortured for Christ, people that are imprisoned, those who have uh, refused to bow their knee, and there's this suffering, it's like, man, we want to avoid that. We got we to gotta avoid that. And what if, what if the suffering is actually an act of love? What if that suffering is actually the cost of the kingdom? What if that's the place when you stand before him, it becomes the rewards of those that you lay at his feet? What if it's the garments that he says, my pride, what you've done for me, fits well with if you'll persevere, to the church in Revelation, I have seen your perseverance and I have seen your faithfulness, and you have not bowed, and I will now keep you from that which is coming on the whole earth. I want to read you, um, I want to give acknowledgement in the turn up the reference one, if you'll pull up the PowerPoint on credit and reference to Elliot. Um, I'm gonna, I've invited Elliot to come speak. I don't know if he'll be able to make it, but um, I've known uh, Pastor Elliot Tepper for over 21 years. In fact, uh, as a church, I don't know if you know this, he, he's a WEC missionary. Um, we've supported him, not with a lot, but every year we've supported him. He's very grateful. And every time he's off the mission field, he travels all the time. I think he's 70, 73, 74 right now. Um, his wife passed away, she had a brain tumor, um, he's paid a tremendous price, and, but what a man of God, I, I, he wrote the book, The Cost of the Kingdom, and, and I read it before, my wife and I have read it before, and um, a few weeks ago, the Lord just, the Holy Spirit, I was like, Lord, he goes, I want you to read this book again, I'm like, because I'm in a different place from where I read it before, in my own walk of sufferings and understanding this, and uh I'm telling you what, it's, ro- it's rocking my world right now on the revelation of this. And I think there's a preparation for what the church is going to go through that we need to be prepared and understand what this is and have a different reference as a body of believers. And so, I want to acknowledge him. He's uh, Elliot, is, he's a brother, he's a friend, a fellow servant, missionary pastor. He's the founder of Battelle Ministries. Uh, he's the senior pastor of that church in, in Madrid, and we've been there. Who's been there? Mom's been there. Terry's been there. Uh, we've had 16, 20 some odd there. Um, we did a mission trip there, and I, I did a breaking free on his leadership. Let me just tell you a little bit about his ministry. They're in 22 nations. Uh, I forget how many uh, houses they have now for drug addicts and prostitutes. It's big street ministry. They charge no dollars to come in. The Casa de Chica, for example, in Spain, uh, they have these individual houses and they'll gather the prostitutes off the street, heroin addicts off the street. They'll give them a bed, a place to stay, don't charge them anything. They go cold turkey, you'll be, t- you'll be drug tested, you need to go through, you'll be in church, you'll wake up at s- early in the morning, you'll be into the Word, you'll go to church, you'll work in the church. They have uh, recovery systems where running restaurants, selling chickens, uh, they got all these different businesses. In fact, they're 90% self-funded in all of their, and they're in 22 nations, and at the last time I spoke to them a couple of months back, they had 6,000 under roof right now, in their ministries. The, the recovery rate for the heroin addicts, in fact, the Spanish government couldn't understand how come the recovery rate for this Christian-based organization that takes no money from us is so much more advanced and capable of returning people to healthy lives than we are who is funding through the Spanish government. So they got a reporter a, a, they said, you need to go, what's going on with these guys? So, you got an unsaved believer, uh, unsaved man who's not a believer, he's assigned to Batel in Spain, and he goes, hang out with them for months and do a, figure it all out for us and make a report. Yeah. So, he does, and they assign him to this big Spanish ex- drug-dealing character, in, in, in his, his name in Spanish was The Thick One. I don't know how you say it in Spanish, but literally means he, he, he's big. He's like a tree stump, a big guy. And uh, so they assigned him, and he was kind of higher in the... He'd worked through all of his stuff, had gotten free. and was a real puller on the rope. Anyway, they ended up writing a book called We Dance Because We Cannot Fly. And what happened with this was... If you ever, in the Spanish church, it's the largest evangelical church in Madrid. And when you walk into this place, you'll see hundreds of drug dealers, ex-people, you know, many of them don't have teeth. They're tattooed. They got all sorts of jewelry hanging in places you can't believe you can hang them. And, uh, and so, but all of a sudden, the worship will start, and these rough-looking, rugged folks get up, and worship breaks out. And so, the the reporter is trying to figure out, you know, this flag it looks a little bit like here, except maybe not all the jewelry. You know, flags are going, people are doing right, and it's free. And he, he just turns to the thick one. He goes, and the thick one starts dancing. Here's this big character, and he's up there, and he's, he, and and the reporter's trying to figure out. And he's never been in a surface like this. Like, oh, different. Is this part of the recovery? Yeah, <laughs> the Holy Spirit is here, and so. It was interesting, off the cuff, the thick one, he says, w- let me, why do you dance? He said, we dance because we cannot fly. He goes, huh? <laughs> he goes to the houses. He watches my daughter at 21 years old after being a year in Mozambique, detoxing six heroin addicts in her room, in a room not much bigger than these chairs here, calls. I said, honey, what are you up to? And what's that sound in the background? Yeah, we're in the midst of detoxing. We just had some new, new girls get in. And, uh, and, and, well, you can imagine, if you detox off heroin, if you've ever seen anybody come off that, you'll know what I mean. And so... They do it cold turkey with the Holy Ghost. And, and so, well, we've been there. And one of the places that, uh, well, he said, I'm going to take you to a place that uh, will probably be a little bit shocking to you, but you can't take pictures and don't stare just, and it's called the outpost on the boundaries of hell. And what this, I'm not exaggerating to you. Terry, you can back me up on this. Mom, you can tell me as well. There's, um, Battelle goes there, and there's a place outside of Madrid where they allow the drug addicts to go. You can sell and deal and buy drugs, but you you do it all in the confines of this place. You can't do it on the streets. You can't rob Spanish citizens. You come here, and you deal your stuff, and it's, the police allow all of that to go on. It's It's a drug camp. He says, now, Battelle has a ministry bus, and they're allowed to go in, and they, they rescue people off, the, off of those places. And I remember we drove into this place, and they got block houses with, and I'm not exaggerating, they've got people outside the drug house with AK-47s, protecting the drugs and whatever. You come in, you make your deal. He says, typically what happens, you'll see the wealthy will come in. They'll drive in with a Mercedes or something like that, and within a few months, They have nothing, and now they're in the camp. One of the things I saw that I still burn in my memory was a woman that had to be in her seventh or eighth month of pregnancy. And as we're driving by, she's sitting on this broken chair with a needle hanging out of her hand, pregnant and completely under the influence of heroin. The needles are stacked in the place, the the filth and the, you could feel the darkness in that place. And Battelle Ministries, they go there and they, they encourage. Come on, you want? Are you ready to come out now? You, come on. We can. We come. Come with us. All of the leadership of Battelle, many, m- the majority of them, have come out and are fr- are clean, and they're they know the streets. They're they're savvy. I mean, you know, you're not going to pull the wool over. And so Battelle is has a special place in my heart. And and uh, Elliot um, has family here in town. Um, I've done prayer ministry on with the family, and uh, I, I said, when you come, Elliot, we've got a lot of folks that probably don't know your story. Come and preach. He's an amazing preacher. And so, um, I want to read you, when he, st- when he wrote this, there's a, what? how much time we got? Okay, good. We'll, we'll finish on this. Um, in chapter one of The Cost of the Kingdom, the book that he wrote, um, there's a section that says, how much is the field worth? In this example of the pearl of great price where you sell everything or the one who found the treasure and sold everything, how much is the field worth? How much is the treasure cost? Everything. Let me ask it this way, is the price the same for everyone? Yes, no, yes? The price of the field okay. is everything. The way I look at it is when you find the treasure, you go and sell all you have, and then after you do that, you come back and you get the treasure and you keep it there. Once you find it, it's like it's the most important thing you've ever found in your life. So you sell all you have, and then when you find you, that treasure, you get back the greater. You you're onto something, John. But is the price the same for everyone? Whether you're Bill Gates... Or you're the homeless man on the street. It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything. Now, just stop there for a minute and say, do I have all the chips in the table? Have I pushed, man, on a good analogy, but have I pushed everything in? Am I all in? Or am I like the rich ruler? Um, I've done all the moral things. I'm, I'm a good guy. Sell everything and follow me, and you'll lack nothing. Let me read this to you, because it just moved me. Um, I've, his uh, son and daughter-in-law ran Battelle, New York. I grew up in, I, I grew up on Long Island, I was born here, grew up on Long Island, but I went to school for four years in the Bronx on Pennyfield Avenue. And uh, that's a tough place, if you've ever been there and lived there. And so, they ran Battelle, New York, um, and there was a particular convert, a Muslim convert, that came through their ministry. And Elliot had come from Spain off his trip and he was visiting his son and daughter-in-law in New York, at Patel, New York. And lots of challenges in that kind of ministry, you can imagine. But I want you to read, I want you to read this to you. He says, when I was in New York, um, lots of battles going on with the ministry there, battles every day on the streets and the sidewalks. And, but I discovered a treasure in New York City. I met a plumber and his name was Ahmet. Mary, his wife, and um, Elliot's wife, who's now in heaven. We were visiting our son David and and his wife Naomi and the family. They are the directors of of Battelle America. The kitchen drain, they were in this older house. They'd rented, you can imagine the rent in New York, right? So they got a deal on a place that they're going to, and people that you're ministering to who are drug addicts and prostitutes, they're not in the upside towns. They're here, right? So they're in a tough side of town. And they live there. The family live there. And so, The kitchen drain was blocked, so I decided to unstop it. I got a wire clothes hanger, and I was poking it in the ancient pipe, and it burst. The flooding from underneath the kitchen cabinet, trying to be helpful, I made a terrible mess. My son David called their plumber, Ahmet. Ahmet, who had fixed other plumbing problems in the building before, it was late, but he came right over he got down on his knees, got underneath, stuck his head under the cabinet, and he began dismantling the old pipes. This black, smelly goo started pouring out on him and on the floor. The plumbing was so old that the drainage system broke right off from the wall. It was a bigger problem than any of us had anticipated, and it was already getting late. Ahmet was very cheerful, not discouraged. With gusto, he began digging out the black muck, covered himself in it, the immediate area around him, the sink. I was really struck by the joy and and the enthusiasm despite how late it was, how difficult it was, how smelly it was. The contrast intrigued me. He relished the work and he radiated joy. I stayed with him. We talked. I asked him about his family, his background. He came to me. He said, I came from a Muslim family but I was converted to Christ, and now I'm a member of the Evangelical Church of Queens. I asked him what his family thought about his conversion to Christianity. He told me they didn't approve of it at all in his new faith. In fact, his mother especially was opposed to his conversion and told him that Muslims could never become Christians and would never cease from being a Muslim. As we talked, he told me about how it was as a Muslim, how he had married a Venezuelan evangelical Christian in New York. This was really distressing to his mother. She had never accepted the fact that he had married a Christian, asked him if his wife had led him to Christ, and he replied, no, she didn't lead me to Christ. He continued working on it, on his side, stuck his head under the sink, covered in the dirty water and the muck and the smell, while he explained to me how he encountered Christ. One day I was sitting alone in a park, totally desolate, I was in despair. And I cried out to God for help and comfort. Suddenly, God filled me with love. Overwhelmed with love, a love that I've never experienced before in anything ever around me. or. And then God asked me a question. Do you know my son? Ahmed paused and he smiled at me from under the sink with a joy that came from another world. He was like a precious jewel shining in the night. Of course, after about 30 years, my family still has never accepted me and my faith. But the presence of God was so real in the, cri- in the kitchen, in the muck, that I knew I was experiencing a transcendent moment in God. He says, I can understand your experience and your reaction from your mother, You see, I was from a Jewish background. My family was Jewish. And in 1971, I cried out in Boston on some agony of heart walking along the Charles River, and God showed me Christ, His love, He showed me heaven, and He showed me hell. My mother would never accept my conversion in Christ, and in many ways she marginalized me. We both went into more details of our conversion, our experience, and now you can see this ex-Muslim plumber lying in a floor covered with muck with a big black slimy smile on his face and an ex-Jew next to him, both of us full of light and the glory of sharing a, a knowledge of Christ together. Amen. Truly the Holy Spirit had brought us into this banqueting house and His banner over us was love. I said to Ahmet, It's not been easy, has it? Your life and mine and our families and the rejection? He surprised me with a big smile. He said, quote, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross each day and follow me. The plumber had gone directly to the heart and the core of Christianity and what it means to be a follower of Christ. I couldn't imagine a better answer. Ahmed continued, now we have something much better than we lost. The plumber was simply agreeing with the carpenter. He had given up everything, but he had gotten everything. Amen. <sighs> I'm telling you, the the revelation of the cost of the kingdom. So we're going to pick up next week, and I want to end with I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll Close in. If you'll turn to the second page, maybe pull up the uh, the second page list of questions. Questions I've many of you have probably asked, and I've asked myself. You can kind of think about these things maybe this week. Why does a loving, and righteous, and all powerful God allow the righteous to suffer? Why did the Lord allow Satan to systematically strip righteous Job of everything? His wealth, his possessions, his children, his servants, his health, his reputation. The only thing Job was allowed to keep was his integrity and his life. What is the kingdom and where is it? How do you become a citizen of this kingdom and what's the cost? Can we negotiate the price? Is it the same price for everyone? Are there privileges of being in the kingdom both now and later? When Jesus spoke to the deceived, lukewarm church of Laodicea in Revelation 3, and he said, you think you're rich and you're well-dressed but you're really wretched, poor, blind, and naked, and I advise you to buy gold from me that was purified by fire. How do you buy gold from God that's purified by fire? How do you buy gold from God that is purified by fire? The next verse in that Scripture also says, also tell you to buy garments from me. I think you're onto something. I'd just like you to think these through for where you are. And the last the last, one on that, what did Jesus mean when he told us to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt? And then he went on, he said, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So, these are um, questions that pull upon and demand... An answer or at least a revelation of and there's lots of scripture with tension on both sides of this and we got to always remember uh, there's always grace <laughs> i'm glad that the bad and the good got into the wedding feast right so it's not about how bad everything you did and in, in you know my barely because i i certainly don't want to give the impression that um you're not going to be forgiven. We know that once he said, 1 John 1, 9, he said, if you'll confess your sins to me, he's faithful to forgive me from all unrighteousness. So I have a sense, if you put it all together, the ones that were in that banqueting room had gone through the process of the repentance and had obtained that level of grace and freedom. But if you think you can sneak in with no repentance and hope grace is going to get you there, hmm. Well, let's stand and we'll we'll be dismissed tonight. And Lord, I thank you that um, your word is so powerful. It's so, uh, you know, I know that oftentimes the word brings comfort to those that are not comfortable. But it also makes the, un- the comfortable really uncomfortable. And the word, as we read it, tends to start reading us. And that's why in 2 in Timothy 3.16, he said that all inspiration is good and given by the inspiration of God, and it's able to equip us and make us able to be prepared. So, Lord, I pray for all those listening by live stream, all those that are here tonight. Lord, we pray, Lord, first I pray rest over you, but you'll meditate on the goodness of God. I I really believe that part of the answer to challenging is Trusting the goodness of God, that he's so super good, and I'm going to give us a ton of scriptures about the goodness of God, that he's incapable of not being good, just like he's not capable of not loving. God is love. So Lord, I pray for the revelation of the goodness of God and I ask now your peace over each one here tonight in Jesus name. Amen, God bless you all. thanks for being here tonight